Now, Capacity Crisis, BC's Healthcare System. Yeah, we got to talk about the healthcare capacity crisis here in BC. There are many, many pieces of this very broken puzzle, but very few wear the burden as heavily as BC nurses do. You might have heard this on our airwaves. BC nurses are struggling through a nightmare. They are working critically short-staffed, making it more difficult to provide safe patient care. Because of this, 82% of nurses say their mental health is suffering. Can you help me? For many, the only way out is to leave the profession. Ask government to take action. Let's ensure the future of healthcare for all British Columbians. Okay, did you get that stat? 82% of nurses say they're struggling with depression, like 82%. And even prior to COVID-19, prior to this incredibly taxing couple of years on our healthcare system and all of our frontline workers, even before all that, there was a nursing shortage. There was an issue with nurses being incredibly overworked to the point of, of not being able to, to hold those pieces together for our healthcare system to make it through. And here we are talking about it. Uh, very important subject. We want to bring in the vice president of the BC Nurses Union. Adrian Gear is on the line. Thanks for doing this. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's talk through, if you wouldn't mind, some of the issues and then some of the possible ideas to help support nurses in BC. Where are we? How much of a capacity crisis are we experiencing here from the nurse's perspective? Well, certainly we are at a, a crisis uh, situation. Um, we're, not, we're not going into a crisis. We are in a crisis. Everyday nurses working in acute care, long-term care, home and community are not able to provide the essential care that our patients, residents, and clients require. Um, this is happening with more and more frequency. It's not a one-off situation. This has become the reality for many nurses and, and for the patients. Yeah, it's terrifying. And we played that spot that we air here on CKNW. We see it on, on Global, on the station, and, and the visuals that go along with it, the nurse standing in the hallway where there's, there's a patient there and there's a patient there and someone's calling for them and another needs them desperately. And it's, that's the crisis. The crisis here very much, the, the need for more nurses, the need for more support. And, and certainly you can speak to the fact that prior to the pandemic, because we've been having these conversations ongoing, there were issues with nurses legitimately incapable of leaving their job on a day because there wasn't somebody to come take over for them, like almost mandatory overtime. Yeah, no, you've, you've nailed it. Um, it would seem that the basic employment rights afforded to the general workforce in this province are actually not experienced by nurses. Uh, shift after shift, nurses who work eight and extended 12-hour days are often required to work 14, 16, or even, even more than that. Um, often yeah. this is without a rest or a meal break, uh, called relentlessly to come in for overtime. And of course, nurses do because they care. We want to care for our patients, but it, it's gotten to a, a point where it's just not humanly possible anymore. Um, many nurses are at a breaking point. Adrian Gear is the vice president of the BC Nurses Union. And Adrian, I played that that spot um, that is literally titled "Help BC Nurses." That's what the commercial's called. How do we help BC nurses? What is the most urgent need, and what is the action that can be taken? Well, I mean, so help BC nurses. We're asking the public 
to to go to our microsite and listen to nurses' stories and take action by by writing their MLAs and and speaking up in support of nurses. Uh, but what do we need? Well, we need more nurses hired. Uh, but more importantly, uh, there's not much point in hiring nurses if you can't retain them. And so, really, there has to be something done about the the, the very distressing um, working conditions that nurses are are in. Um, and you know, I just I just mentioned like the the, the long shifts, the mandatory overtime. Uh, nurses need more support for their mental health. Uh, despite being short staffed, they actually need to have time off to to recover and 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 rec- recoup from. Uh, from, you know, not just the pandemic, but really years of, of, of working short. Uh, we need to see um, more non-nurses hired so that they can actually relieve nurses of duties that aren't, re- aren't required by nursing. Like when we're in a, in a global shortage of highly educated professionals, why are nurses spending the very little amount of time that they have cleaning, portering, stocking things? Like it's ridiculous. Um, right. And health employers need to take bold steps uh, to to step in and 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 help. Uh, this can't all be managed on the backs of nurses any longer. You know what, Adrian? I'd never really thought about it in that term. I'm so glad you you pointed to the fact that the skill set of a nurse, the training of a nurse, what a nurse brings to the table, should not be something that is delayed or distracted to do jobs that don't require the level of education that nurses have brought to the table. And I don't think that's really been touched on uh, very much. Certainly not something that, that it, it, it's a light bulb moment for me. It's an aha for me. So there are other ways to support because there are a lot of conversations and maybe you can educate the listener who doesn't understand that there are only so many um, opportunities to get into the, the uh, education system to become a nurse. There are only so many seats. Uh, available. And then it takes time to, to train and learn and become part of the workforce. But there are ways to fast track supports for around nurses that have sort of fallen to the wayside in, in over the many decades of nurses just, you know, shoring up all, all the holes and, and, and putting their fingers in the dam, if you will, in this crisis. Yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. That is what's happened over time. And I think health administrators, you know, they try to cut budgets and things like that by um, not providing, for example, like 24 hour uh, unit clerk coverage. I mean, that is a person that is able to process doctor's orders and, 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 you know, develop care, write things in care plans and what have you. Many units only have, you know, so many hours of a day of a unit clerk. And then that processing of those orders um, ordering the drugs, picking up the drugs, um, you know, that falls to, falls to the nurses. Um, again, wow. you know, basic uh, tasks, not, and not to minimize it because we need good infection control. Uh, but, but again, nurses um, having to uh, quickly uh, change over rooms or emergency bays and things like that to, to get the next patient in. Like why, why are, isn't there adequate support staff um, to ensure that that those important that important work it is important work, but not work For that sure. is required to be done by a nurse. And that would, yeah. I think, um, at least in the interim, alleviate some of the pressures that we're seeing. But at the end of the day, I want to be really clear: we need more nurses, and while we can hire them, we are losing them. People are new grads come into this, and they are just in pure like they're in shock. 
there's no way they can manage what is expected of them. Um, the, the relentless like exposure to human suffering um, is create, creates moral distress, burnout, and, and, e- and even worse for people. So we see that we're losing new grads. And then we have nurses at sort of the other end of the spectrum that could certainly work for a few more years. They're very capable. They're knowledgeable. These are senior nurses that are saying, you know what? Can't do it anymore. But if the working conditions, if, if nurses felt like they were being treated with respect by their employers, um, they would actually work another couple more years. And so, you know, until there's some, some major initiatives to address the state that we're in, um, employers should be making it a top priority to treat their staff with respect and retain them. And that's something that we're just not seeing. So, Adrian, you just laid out perfectly why this is a healthcare capacity crisis, bringing in the new grads who are shocked by what their job is now, and then having those those veteran nurses who would then bring those new grads up to speed, up to, to the level, like as a team, certainly anybody who has been in our healthcare system and, and received the great care that, that nurses and physicians and frontline workers of, of all walks bring to the table. Uh, but the level of of stress associated with these most recent years in our healthcare system have to have exacerbated uh, the issues in ways that, that, you know, nobody can blame a nurse that has been, you know, in it for 20, 25 years and has just gone through this last two and a half years and said, you know what, I need a break. My mental health is at stake here. And we've even heard stories of retired nurses coming back to want to help, you know, whether it be in vaccination clinics or, or offering their services uh, in and around BC. I want to ask you this, Adrian. Do you know, and I'm not sure if this is a fair question, you're the vice president of the BC Nurses Union, but is this a, an issue that we're seeing across Canada or is this a, a, an issue that is, is brighter or more difficult here in British Columbia? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly couldn't, you know, delve into the specific details, but I mean, this is, this is a, a, a national, it's an international, this is a global problem. But here's the thing, right. it's been well forecasted for many, many, many years. And there's certainly enough blame to go around uh, for this current government and past governments for not taking the steps that they needed to years ago to invest in nursing. So this, like, this isn't new. We've been we've been calling and pointing this out for years, uh, and yeah. it, it, I would say, has been the pandemic that's maybe really exacerbated the situation. And the the fractures are now just so huge. Um, the cracks are now big you know, big holes and, and nurses can no longer um, plug them. It's a nonpartisan issue. That's a really important piece of this. Needing help on our front lines in this healthcare capacity crisis is very real. And Adrian Gear, we appreciate you taking some time to help lay it out in such a succinct way so we can reflect on it and know that it's up to all of us to care for our nurses so that they're there to care for us in our most uh, incredible uh, hours of need, if you will. I appreciate you taking some time for us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Jody Vance for Mike Smith, and we are talking healthcare capacity crisis here on the program, and we've opened up the phone line, 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Are you a nurse? Have you experienced the, the distress of trying to keep our healthcare system running at a level that serves everybody who needs the care. Have you experienced this? Are you concerned about healthcare in BC? What do you think should be done? 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Dave in Fort Langley, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Jody. Um, great topic. I am supporting the nurses and our doctors 
But one thing I've noticed is that one of the tactics that nurses have used over the years, and it's not just during the pandemic, is that a lot of them choose to work part-time. And the reason for that is, is because we're short, short of nurses, they have to call these guys in. And instead of making just a normal eight-hour day's pay, they're making four hours at normal pay and four hours at overtime, at time and a half. So maybe if they scrutinized why people are working part-time and got people to work full-time, maybe it would bring down the cost of our health care significantly. Hmm. I didn't know they were working part-time and then charging overtime. I'm not sure how that works. Can you explain well, that? Why, 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 would you, why would you work uh, when they know that there's so much work? Why would you work full-time rather than working part-time and getting half your wages at time and a half? If I'm a part-time worker and they call me in constantly for eight-hour shifts or whatever, I'm going to be making a whole lot more money than your average nurse who's just working eight hours at a regular, at a regular um, dollar value. Right. Yeah. Okay, Dave. Well, thanks for your call. I'm going to look further into that because I'm not sure that that quite adds up. But I see where you're coming from. I don't think that nurses are making a, a big dough off of uh, working extra hours at this point. Let's go to Tom and Ladner. What, what do you think on this subject, Tom? Oh, hi. Um, Yeah, my comment is, like, I have total respect for the nurses and the job they do. Uh, Years ago, we used to have what they called candy stripers, and they used to come in and support the nurses so the nurses could perform the tasks that they were more qualified to do, of course. Would this not alleviate some of the pressure on the nursing staff? I also, one other question is, I believe it was the nurses' union that came down on the candy stripers, and that's the reason why there's no such uh, position available at this time. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Bezos, come on, Jeffrey. This is the Mike Smith Show. Very specific reference there in our intro song to this next segment. You know, there was a time when making a purchase online felt risky. But over the last few years, it's been sort of the go-to way to shop, right? Just ask Jeff Bezos, that billionaire owner of Amazon. Bezos actually points to his customer service as the difference maker in his business success. What has worked at Amazon is focusing on the customer, being very putting the customer first, which is easy to say but difficult to do. And if you really are customer centric, it's like being the host of a party. You're holding the party for your guests. Uh, sometimes the host of the party is holding the party for the host of the party. <laughs> and that's that leads to a different kind of party. Right. So sometimes when you think you buy from Amazon, you actually don't. And that can cause, well, frankly, a headache if your purchase turns into a return or worse, doesn't arrive. There are lots of moving parts to this. We want to get uh, a bit of a cautionary tale from our good friend, Sandy Garasino. You know her, you love her. She's a public affairs columnist with the National Observer, former Crown Prosecutor, and good friend of the program, and a great follow on social media, which is where I saw you posting about this yesterday, Mm. Sandy, and said, come on the radio with me. Lay out the the tale of your Amazon you thought purchase. Hey, Jody, thanks for having me on. So this is this is just like a really long saga, and it's and it's actually coming to a head right now as we speak. Um, but it's been almost two months. So I've been looking for a bed base, believe it or not, as simple as that. And uh, I shopped around locally, wasn't happy with the selection or the pricing, and um, I went to Amazon, and I found exactly what I was looking for. 
and just clicked, you know, buy now. Here yeah. we go. And we got it. Well, um, then comes the saga. So this arrives, and it arrives in two parts. FedEx deliver, delivers it. I didn't even really understand anything about that at that point. Uh, and it, but in, they dumped it off on my porch um, in two parts, very heavy, hundreds of pounds, because there's something to this. Anyway, um, but it's over, two, it's over 200 pounds, and they, they dump it on my porch. I discover it when I open my door at the end of the day that this is here. But, like, I can't move this. I can't get it inside. Um, so, but I've got a good... And you were home I, when I it was, was delivered. Home. I was home when it was delivered, did, but nobody did it knock knocked. on the door? Nope. Nobody knocked. Nobody rang the doorbell. No text. No nothing. No notice. And by the time I found it, it was heading into evening and I and I couldn't. But I was arranging for somebody to come and and help get it get it in the house the next morning. Open the door the next morning. The packages are gone. The parcels are gone. Um, a security camera, I had just installed security camera. This is a big, um, um, huge plus in this story. And security camera footage shows that um, a masked and hooded team with an SUV came and picked, and, and picked these pieces up um, in, in, at 6 o'clock in the morning that morning. So how did, they, how did this team... That targeted the house. This was not like an opportunistic, you know, some homeless person, you know, looking for change or something. This was a team in an SUV, targeted, masked, hooded, came together. They knew what they were getting was heavy because they came in a pair. Um, so something's very fishy. Well, it turns out that I actually hadn't bought from Amazon because when I contacted them, they say, well, you bought from a third-party seller. You have to go and, and work through them. The third-party seller says, uh, well, I'll, I'll contact FedEx and find out what happened. FedEx said, well, you, you deli- we delivered it, so that's the end of our involvement. We delivered it. It's fine. The seller says, well, we can't do anything about it because, because, we're, um, uh, because FedEx said they delivered it, so we, we, can't, we can't deal with this now. We have no claim. Um, Amazon says, and this has been going on for weeks and weeks. And all my contacts with Amazon were saying, look, we're going to, this is a third party transaction. We don't, we don't deal with this. You have to work through the third party. But if the third party seller doesn't help you come back to us, we will help you. And multiple phone calls, multiple online chats. And I had screen caps of multiple assurances this would be taken care of. But it kept getting blocked and not being taken care of. And different agents tried to escalate it, and it wasn't being taken care of. And finally, someone told me on May 24th, no, I'm going to approve this. I'm going to refund you your money. You're going to be fine. And then nothing. And then, hmm. then I contact them again, and they say, oh, no, we're not going to refund you. That was a mistake. We're not going to refund you. So the final piece in the saga, I don't, I think, but I don't know, is that Amazon is now saying that they have really looked at this and they are going to take care of this. Meanwhile, FedEx has also looked at this 
and FedEx says, okay, well, we're going to take responsibility for this. So we're going to, we're going to, but it has taken two months and it only started to happen, Jody, when I took to social media. And the other piece in this story is that I had security cam footage. Right, um, that, right. That, that there was no doorbell and, and, and nobody tried to contact me. Oh, and one other Boy, piece of this is, yeah, keep that, going. Is, that, is that FedEx said, and my, and my Amazon and, um, shipping um, notification said, a signature is required. But FedEx right. is now saying, well, even though that said a signature is required, because of COVID, we're not requiring our agents to obtain signatures. So I don't know why they're, why they're even, you know, we're, we're into the year three of COVID. So I don't know why FedEx is saying, it's pretending that we are going to require a signature, but we're not. Hmm. There's so much, like I said, a cautionary tale here, Sandy, and certainly your, your social media presence and your reach helps you. Not everybody has that. Not everybody has a security camera. And certainly no. there are people who are purchasing from Amazon who don't realize they're purchasing from a third party, aren't expecting FedEx to drop things off, but rather expecting an Amazon truck to pull up and yep. don't expect somebody to come and steal from them you know, in, in the, in the dark of night, like, cause you, I know exactly where you live and it's not like a, a, a high traffic, you roll by, you saw the, the truck there deliver something. So you're, you know, mental no. note, there's something on her porch. This is not uh, that kind of a situation. This all really stinks. It stinks. It, and it, I hope it, you get it sorted. My goodness. It, it, it stinks because it feels like there's some kind of inside thing happening. Um, yeah. because I don't know how anybody would even know, like with this, is, I, I've lived here for 22 years. Well, I don't get stuff stolen from my porch. Somebody knew no. that there was a heavy load there. So, and the other thing about this is, yes, I am getting satisfaction today, but because I have a social media reach, because I have people like you who are following and want to make this story be get publicity, um, and I, I have no doubt at all that that's why I'm getting satisfaction. But imagine people for if English is a second language, or they don't have security cameras to prove that what they're saying is true, or any of right. any of these things. One other point is that people on Twitter were all saying, and this actually did come up, Amazon said, well, try and see if your credit card company will, um, will reverse the charge and not charge you. So I contacted them and they said, well, because you admit that the item was delivered, we can't reverse the charge. Um, but they say, but we will insure it. So contact, your, contact this number for the insurance. And then the insurance says, the insurance people, part of the credit card, say, well, because you didn't sign for it, uh, we, oh. can't, we can't insure it. <laughs> but I just really. But you don't sign it. for it because FedEx says they don't need to sign for it anymore because of COVID. Like, this is a hot potato. Oh, man, that's the perfect musical drop. Sign sealed, delivered, not hers. Sandy Garasino is with us as just a regular, everyday Joe Public person, good friend of the program. Of course, she's a public affairs columnist as well as a former Crown Prosecutor. But, Sandy, just before the break, you were telling your cautionary tale of ordering through Amazon. You ordered your bed frame. You thought you were ordering from Amazon. You were actually ordering from a third party. It was delivered by FedEx. 
hundreds of pounds on your front doorstep. Uh, you couldn't move it. Nobody had knocked on your door. You didn't sign for it. You just opened your door to this. So then you had to get people to come and, and, and book people to come and, and bring them into your house. By the time those people arrived, they had been removed by someone with an SUV. A couple of people came up masked and hooded and, and took away your thousands of dollars worth of, of goods that you had purchased. And only because of the security camera, your due diligence and, and months of phone calls, uh, are you perhaps possibly finding some relief? Did I summarize that? Yeah, you did. Yep, you did. Okay. And, and Amazon is now in FedEx. So they're, they're on it now, probably because I'm on this radio show. Probably because you are. And there are many, many people lined up on our phone lines right now who want to share their uh, cautionary tales or experiences as well. So let's get straight to it. Gordon in Princeton, you're up first. Welcome. Yes, hi. Um, hi. When I used to live down on the coast, it happened quite often. And I believe that, uh, that uh, um, delivery companies should have more responsibility. They don't, half the time, they never even knock on the door. They just drop a package and leave. You have no idea. You have no idea what, you know, um, I remember way back when you could determine where you wanted the package delivered, if it was a back door or open the screen door and put it in the screen door or something like that. There's none of that happening anymore. So I think that, and it's not just FedEx, it's, it's all the, all the yep. delivery companies. They, they take no responsibility. They just drop and run. Yeah, that's a good point. And Sandy, you were making that about, you know, what we were almost into year three here. We're into year yep. three of COVID. Uh, this, yep. this can't be just like, oh, you don't need a signature. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I completely agree with the caller. And, and really, this, this, this does fall to the feet of the delivery companies. And, and um, you know, I think that there are some jurisdictions, I've heard that there are some jurisdictions in Europe where, where it's required that they, that they have really strong contact. And I think that this would be an area where maybe some consumer protection um, right. legislation could get beefed up to, to require um, better contact. Yeah, because you're just really lucky you had a security camera in place. Errol in Maple Ridge, you're up next. Welcome. Uh, hello. Uh, I got It's like a good and funny story. I ordered from Amazon an electric bike, and they delivered a bike, and I did sign for it. And then, I, and then when I, it, went, it was the wrong bike. And then uh, it ended up, they said, well, just keep it or give it away or whatever. But when they delivered the real bike the next day or whatever, I had a friend outside. Oh, does this guy live here? Yeah. And they just dropped the bike off uh, in the thing. But I just ordered from Cabello's, right? And no knock, no sign, no nothing. I opened the door and I had like a $200 electric dehydrator and this and that just sitting on the porch. So wow. like you say, the delivery system... The first one was good, but it was pretty funny. It was the wrong bike, but they ended up, Amazon said, Joe, just keep it or give it away. Yeah, it's wild because there's a, there's a big story behind Amazon returns for sure. And, and we should be clear here, Sandy, you're not slagging Amazon. It's more like the cautionary tale of really knowing who you're buying from and how it's being delivered and the processes behind it. I think there's an opportunity for learning from your tale. That's a big piece of this. Very much so, <clears throat> um, because Amazon was just the platform. But I will say that 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 they were not helpful in how long it took um, to right. get action from them, and I and I it, that took too long. 
much too Your long. Your due diligence is exceptional. Steve on Vancouver Island, welcome to the show. You're up next. Hey guys. So hey. I ordered some I ordered some tools out of Amazon. They got shipped and over on the island here they use they don't use Amazon delivery, they use a third party. I think it's the international, I can't remember what it's called anyhow. Um, so they supposedly, according to my thing, dropped it at my door, never showed up. They sent me a picture. The delivery company sent me a picture. It's not even my door that they dropped at. I contacted oh, Amazon. No. Amazon. Amazon's like, oh, you got to take it up with the delivery company. Get, finally get hold of the delivery company. This has been going on for six, eight weeks now. Delivery company's like, well, just go knock on all your neighbor's doors till you find it. Well, that's what? not my job to start with. And yeah, nobody, no. nobody, Amazon or the or the delivery company want to deal with it. So now, like I said, it's six or eight weeks now, and I'm still chasing this uh, sixty or seventy dollar duel around. Wow! Go knock on your neighbor's door. That's not the best uh, solution, I don't think, for a delivery company. Let's continue down the phone boards here. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight. A free call on your cell. Wayne in Vancouver. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I've had dozens of deliveries every year because I've got two 20-year-olds at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually know the drivers by first name. A few comments about your guest. Number one, uh, she's a Crown prosecutor, so I assume that she read what she was ordered. And it clearly shows when things are being shipped by a third party. So I think she should be aware of that, with all respect to her, of course. Secondly, when it's being shipped, you can track your package. You can register with UPS or FedEx and sign up for when it's delivered, any expected delays. So when we have deliveries at our house, I'm actually alerted that it's just being delivered. So it's not like we're in the dark all the time. And I'm not here to defend any shipping companies. Thirdly, humans are involved. You have to accept a certain amount of risk and a certain amount of screw-ups. It's just the way things are. I hate to say it that way. You know what? You're not wrong. I'm up against the clock here, Wayne. So thank you for your phone call. I appreciate that. And Sandy, I know your due diligence is deep. We just all thought a cautionary tale for those who might just hit by now, right? Thank you for taking some time out, Sandy. Thanks, Jody. This is not something just limited to the U.S. This is something that's breaking out over democracies across the globe. Canada can suffer what happened to America. We've seen problems in the UK, problems in France, problems in the German elections. Most democracies last 300 years and then they go to hell. And we're coming very close to that 300 year mark for the US right now. And unfortunately what happens in America very often happens in Canada. That is the voice of Frank Lutz, and he is a Republican pollster and political strategist, and he is uh, giving us the jumping-off point for our next a couple of segments. And indeed, this is a really important one. There's a new report that, uh, recently published that says Canada needs to consider distancing itself from the United States of America. I'm quoting here. The United States is and will remain our closest ally, but it could also become a source of threat and instability, end quote. The report, written by a task force of former National Security Advisors, former Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, directors, uh, ex-deputy ministers, former ambassadors and academics, uh, one of the co-authors of this report is actually joining us on the line right now. Vincent Rigby is the former National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister. I really appreciate getting to bend your ear here. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Let's talk through 
what I think Canadians have felt to some degree, because we often say, you know, we're not the U.S., we're Canada, we're separate, we're different. Talk us through what we've seen evolve over the last decade or so in the United States, uh, maybe a little bit shorter. Give us your expertise, your perspective on what many Canadians are feeling in our gut, that that our border isn't as, as strong in, in blocking the parts of the United States sort of culture or political climate um, that we'd perhaps like to not have uh, grow in our country. Sure. Well, first of all, as you as you stated quite correctly, the Canada-U.S. relationship, this is our primordial relationship, and it's, it's one that we take extremely, extremely seriously. And we're not suggesting in the report for a moment that we start distancing ourselves, per se, from the United States, and we're not saying that we have to change our approach today. We're simply saying that there has been some democratic backsliding in the U.S. over the last number of years, especially under the Trump administration. There has been a polarization, a radicalization of politics. You've seen that play out just in the last couple of weeks, whether it's over abortion or gun control with respect to these horrific shootings that have taken place in Buffalo and in Texas. It's a, it's a country that's that's roiled by a considerable degree of instability. And I talk to colleagues, friends in the U.S. on a regular basis, and they're, they're the first ones to say that there are some very, very disturbing trends, um, extremely disturbing trends. And so... Um, as the United States' northern neighbor, um, we've suggested in our report that Canada needs to watch this very closely. And we're not saying the threat or the instability is going to impact us in a significant way today, maybe not even tomorrow. But that down the road, especially if President Trump or a President Trump-like character were to come back into the presidency, um, that there, there, there could be political violence, there could be further instability, and it, it could get a little a little harrowing. We just don't know. And what we do in government, and what we do in particular in the security intelligence communities, is, is we look at scenarios, and we look at contingency planning. And so we're saying, start building out some scenarios, and we, we, we sometimes call them black swans, <laughs> things that you don't expect to see, but you never know. Right. So you, you have to plan for them. So that's, that's really what, what we're saying. We're not pushing the alarm button here. We're not saying the sky's falling with the United States, but we're saying disturbing trends. Let's keep an eye on them. Yeah. That democratic backslide. I think that's a, that's an important sort of terminology here that, that, that speaks to the severity of being aware of it. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, like you said, not causing it to be a massive, you know, red alert. Um, what can be done what, what is the advice of this report when it comes to how Canadians must manage? I mean, we're, we're just a, a tiny next to the, the, the beast, the, the, the elephant, the, the powerhouse that is the United States when it comes to, you know, really all things. We're, we're large in landmass, but I mean, overall, our population is that of California. Well, that, that's it. And you mentioned the elephant, as you were saying that, it reminds me of the, of the old... Um, image of the elephant and the mouse and uh, we're in the bed together and when the elephant rolls over and squishes the mouse. The, the other favorite phrase I, I have is, is when the U.S. sneezes, Canada catches a cold. <laughs> so yeah, there are yeah. huge, yeah, there's a thousand of them. <laughs> but uh, but those two are particularly good, I find. But but no, you're, you're 100% right. There's potential spillover. And and so, uh, you know, we, you know, my, my advice right now, our advice collectively um, as authors of the of the report is not that we have to start 
doing something right now, um, border closures or, or, or we, we have to uh, start you know, issuing day marshes to the United States that uh, you know, we're, we're, we're watching you closely and uh, we certainly hope you're not going to break out into civil war. It's, it's again, it's, it's not today. It's, it's not in the next uh, few days and hopefully it won't be for a number of years, if, if ever. But our best advice is you have to um, monitor it very closely. You have to keep a very open dialogue with the U.S. And again, we have extremely close partnerships with our security agencies in the U.S., even under the Trump administration. We work very, very well together. So we, we keep in touch. We, we counter a lot of these threats together. I mean, for example, domestic extremists in the United States talk to domestic extremists in Canada. We saw it a little bit during the, the Freedom Convoy earlier this year. So we can continue to counter some of these threats together. But as I said earlier, it, it's, uh, you know, start building out scenarios. Start, start thinking about what we might have to do, what more extreme measures might we have to do. Uh, several years out, particularly post 2024, if we if we if we get uh, an, an extreme or a Republican president with extreme political views like a Trump uh, uh, again. We are with Vincent Rigby, former National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister and a co-author of this new National Security Threat Report. And what what do you look at or what does your team who all worked on this report? It's fascinating to to sort of dig through it. But was there one moment that was a big wake up call uh, on this or or was it just, you know, many things in dominoes that all fell together? It was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got to We got to address this and look more closely. Well, I think that's exactly it. I think you hit the nail on the head. I've been asked several times, what's the biggest, biggest threat facing Canada right now and, and uh, from the you know, international security, domestic security? And, and I said, it's not one single threat. We don't prioritize the threats. It's a conglomeration, if I can call it that, of a, of a, of a diverse set of threats. So um, we go into a fair bit of detail at the front end of this report on the strategic threat environment. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's scary. Um, you know, a number of people said it's a dark world out there after we looked at it very closely. It's a very dark world. So, so everything from the return of great power rivalry, US-China, US-Russia, which is playing itself out right now in, in, in Ukraine, this ideological divide, you know, we're talking about the problems in the U.S., but this is this is around the world, as one of your commentators said be, be, be beforehand. And so, you know, the decline of democracy is a, is a global trend. Autocracy is seemingly on, on the rise. Uh, we've got threats of, of uh, nuclear escalation in, in Ukraine. And, this, you know, we've got a, a, a arms control regime right now globally, which is which is which is weak. We've got these extremist issues at, at home. Religious terrorism, religiously motivated violent extremism, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, they've not disappeared. They're not the number one threat necessarily anymore, but they still, if they don't have the capability, they have the intent to certainly strike out at the West. Then you have pandemics and, and you have, have climate change and the impacts there. So what, when we look at all these threats and you pull them all together, you, you go, holy cow, there's a, there's a, a yeah. lot there. And it's kind of like a gathering storm, if I can put it that way. And it's not necessarily that the storm is right on top of it right now, but it's on the horizon and it seems to be getting worse. And these trends have been building over a number of years. Ukraine was not a complete surprise. I mean, tactically, operationally, some of the things the Russian did when they did it, perhaps. But you could see that something like this was potentially going to happen and Chinese um, 
aggressive behavior. It's, it's, it's sort of been out there. So that, that was the kind of, wow, it's, it's quite bad out there. And we all knew it. And I knew it when I was the national security advisor, but I think it's, it's uh, the more I've looked at, and especially as I've stepped away from government and had a bit of perspective, I think it struck me even, even more. And I guess the second thing, and it wasn't a surprise, but it's the second message in the report is that we argue that, that Canada is not ready uh, to face this gathering storm. And, and so right. we've always been a little bit complacent about national security. We've always kind of taken it for granted. The U S is going to, take care of us or that nothing's ever going to happen in our soil, because let's be honest, there haven't been, um, you know, huge military aggressive attacks against, against Canada, or even large scale terrorist attacks like nine 11. So um, our allies are doing lots of stuff to respond to this gathering storm. We're not. And so we are urging governments writ large to, to really think, think this through. One last thing before I let you go, and I really appreciate your time, Vincent. Honestly, this is such great perspective. What about the disinformation highway? It struck me when the trucker convoy started and then the blockades at the borders and just how much the Fox News, the Tucker Carlson's of the world just locked onto that and became like, I've never seen so many Canadian flags on Fox News. Um, and, and that disinformation just stokes the flames and really does rally uh, that element here in Canada? No, with, with, without a doubt. And, and, and certainly in, in the convoy context and, and what was happening with, with Tucker Carlson, and uh, which, which was unfortunate, it goes back to our earlier discussion about, about the U.S. And, and instability there and stoking these, these flames. It's, uh, it's, it's not helpful at all. But it's not just coming out of the United States. Disinformation is a problem um, with other um, other actors, including hostile state actors like Russia and China that are engaging in disinformation tactics all the time. And I think with the advent of new technology, with social media, et cetera, that's a real enabler for disinformation. So it becomes, yeah. it becomes even worse. And so it undermines our democracy and it spreads panic and it, it really is not, not helpful. So I think we need a strategy to counter disinformation. I know in the last budget, the government put aside some money to establish a disinformation unit in government, yeah. uh, which I think will be extremely, extremely helpful. And then it's not just a government, a federal government of Canada responsibility. It's all governments at all levels working together and Canadians working together Same in problems and territories yeah. uh, and, and uh, research institutions, universities, etc. So it's a big problem, but you're 100% right. I absolutely, humbly thank you for this. It is so informative and so necessary now. And this report that you co-authored is a must-read for every Canadian, uh, one that does talk about uh, our relationship with the United States and how we need to be planning forward thinking as Canadians. We cannot be asleep at the wheel here uh, with democracy being threatened on not just North American ground, but but all over around the globe, and and it's on all of us uh, to to be mindful of this. Uh, Vincent Rigby, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you. Now, capacity crisis, BC's healthcare system. There are several issues that appear to be contributing to the exodus. Family doctors have been asking the province for an overhaul to the fee-for-service model in order to have more payment options. Financial assistance is needed to help cover the costs of running a small business, as well as enhanced efforts to get more doctors trained and accredited. BC's health minister claims the province is working to resolve these problems. Because there are other opportunities for family practice doctors today. And we've got to make sure we get that balance right. And you only do that by working together. And so that's what we're doing. 
That's a little audio from Kylie Stanton's report on the doctor's shortage. As we dive back into the BC healthcare capacity crisis, you heard Health Minister Adrian Dix there trying to, to find ways to work together with physicians to, to curb what is... Se- a severe systemic issue. I mean, we're going to open up the phones in the next segment about are you struggling to find a GP? Do you have a doctor? If you do have a doctor, how difficult is it to get an appointment with your doctor? I mean, the, the stories are just ever growing and and stressful, particularly in this time where, where health issues, not just in a global pandemic, but also those things that weren't addressed over the course of the last two plus years. I want to connect now with BC family, family doctor, excuse me, BC family doctor, Jennifer Lush is on the line with us. Thank you so much for being with us, doctor. Thank you. I really appreciate the time to be here. Let's talk through what your day-to-day is like and what the struggle is for physicians. Uh, we we hear, as I was saying in the setup there, how people struggle to find a physician. Uh, when they do, it's often difficult to get in to see one because the doctor shortage is very real and a big piece of the healthcare capacity crisis right now. What is needed and what what are you seeing? Thank you. Uh, yes, well, certainly the the system that we are currently trying to function under is a very overburdened and broken system. And family doctors are trained to provide excellent longitudinal cradle-to-grave exceptional care, but that's getting harder and harder to do uh, in a system with, you know, longer wait times and more difficulty accessing services for our patients, Uh, more complex patients requiring and deserving more time to be spent with them, but at the same time, family doctors not being compensated for providing patients with that extra time which then meets the challenges of, of running a business in, you know, a, an environment of rising costs, more and more difficult to navigate. Uh, so all of the above really contribute to the increasing burnout that we're hearing about and the, you know, steadily increasing number of doctors that say we just cannot continue to sustain uh, and, and support the infrastructure of the healthcare system as we've been doing for all these years. I loved a quote that I read from you in the Agassiz Harrison Observer. That's where I was reading it from. Uh, when you were at the legislature to on World Doctors, what was it? World Doctors Day, World Doctor, World Family Doctor Day. I knew there was World a specific Family Doctor Day. <laughs> World Family Doctor Day. I mean, I, there's so much stress associated with when you need your physician. You it, it, not having access is is exacerbates an already horrifying often scenario. And I love what you said here because you're actually calling for primary care reform that prioritizes treating patients themselves over treating the diseases they suffer from. Like how, how do we need to change the way our system is set up? Because clearly before there was even a global pandemic, it was broken. We were having long conversations about wait times in emergency rooms, wait times for surgeries that weren't even elected, elective surgeries, but actually urgent surgeries were often uh, you know, delayed due mm-hmm. to all of the pieces of this sort of house of cards that feels so, it, 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 it's so, um, what's the right term? It feels like one small, blush of air could just bring it all down 
in this moment. It feels. And that's really what it is. It's kind of a house of cards scenario, and we're already seeing the, the house collapsing. And the reason is because an effective primary care system in the form of a longitudinal family doctor relationship is the bedrock of any successful and efficient healthcare system that has been shown over and over again. Uh, and when the bedrock of the healthcare system crumbles, you see it manifest in increased emergency room visits, increased hospitalizations, increased surgeries, uh, and increased mortality, frankly. And it's the patients of British Columbia that sadly are paying the price for the fact that our province is not adequately supporting the longitudinal relationship with a caring family doctor that invests in getting to know the patient, getting to know how best to meet their health care needs that can only be developed over time and through, you know, that relationship, building trust, knowing the past history, knowing the family risk factors, and that will not be delivered in the episodic care model that the urgent primary care centers, for example, are delivering, or and it will certainly not be delivered when people are forced to go to the emergency room to get their primary health care needs met. So to address all of these crises that the healthcare system is is trying to navigate right now, it starts by building up and supporting the bedrock in the form of the family doctors. We're with Jennifer Lush, a BC family doctor and consultant on how we can correct and and adjust to have a more robust healthcare system when it comes to family physicians and access to uh, GPs. Um, I think people don't really understand. I'm lucky to have a family doctor who I've had for a long time. And I I was in his office recently for the first time in a long time because most of our appointments had been virtual. And I looked at him and I said, how are you? How are you doing? Right? You know, looking to the overworked, uh, burdened, global pandemic, trying to carry it all. And he said, you know what? I'm doing pretty well now that I've gotten the tripling of my overhead because my building was sold and it, all of a sudden it's three times more expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and people don't necessarily understand, doctor, that physicians do run small businesses on top of actually being physicians, right? Like there is, there is I'd, I've never really understood why they weren't, um, there weren't some breaks for physicians in order to have a practice where they don't necessarily have to, to run it like they, it, it could be a restaurant. It could be, mm-hmm. it could be any, any small business that they have to cover all of the staffing, all of the insurance, all of the lease payments, all, everything mm-hmm. and be a physician. Exactly, yes. And and the, the challenge is that we are running small businesses, but unlike, say, a restaurant or a retail business, where if the cost of doing business goes up, that they can transfer that cost on to customers to offset the inflation, uh, family doctors have not had the capability of doing that. Uh, our fee codes have gone up. In the past two years, our fee code has increased 10 cents. Uh, and over the past 12 ten years... Cents. It, 10 cents in two years. And over the past 12 years, it's not a whole lot more than that. Uh, Whereas if you look at the cost of doing business over the past 12 years, the cost of our overhead, the cost of every piece of equipment that we have to buy and provide uh, has gone up 29 to 30%. So it's no wonder that we are now saying, you know, we, we basically are providing the government with infrastructure and it is becoming increasingly unsustainable. So it is a totally reasonable ask that the government uh, provide overhead support for family doctors. 
um, you know, to, to keep us functioning, to retain us in the businesses yeah. that we have successfully established. We know how to do this. We know how to run the business, but it's just dollars and cents. And the cents are not adding up right now. The costs are just far outweighing our income. And so we are asking for overhead supports. We are asking for fair compensation for the expertise and the time that we are offering to our patients uh, to allow us to keep offering the quality care that British Columbians deserve. There's so much there. Uh, And I... I, I'm astounded that that hasn't already come into play because of the the need in this capacity crisis, this BC healthcare capacity crisis that is very, very real, that right off the hop, can we not help with the overhead so that our physicians can spend more of their time caring for patients than they do trying to run that business? I'd also like to reference with you, doctor, if I, if I may, how walk-in clinics. People are like, well, you can go to the walk-in clinic. We go to the walk-in clinic because you have a rash or if you have, you know, maybe a, 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 a sore throat or you have something that you need that, that needs like right now, I need this one thing checked. But then you go to a family doctor and you have a laundry list. Mm-hmm. And the, is the pay the same for a walk-in clinic physician as it is for a GP who has their own practice? Uh, it is, it is. So whether or not somebody, you know, has never met the patient before and spends five minutes with them to do a straightforward visit, or whether you're a family doctor dealing with six issues and committing 45 minutes to your patient to give them the care that they need, that's the exact same fee. Uh, and, wow. and so it doesn't acknowledge the relationship. Uh, it doesn't acknowledge, you know, the more complex things that we need to take care of. Uh, you know, other things like writing referrals to specialists or, you know, uh, advocating for our patients. Those are all family, longitudinal family doctor roles. uh, And so those are definitely not being fairly compensated. Uh, The urgent primary care center is the same thing. The family doctors that work there are getting far better compensated for episodic care rather than the, you know, the that really it should be the other way around in that, you know, yeah. if somebody is really investing and, and advocating for their patients and taking more time with their patients, that should be fairly compensated. And, and that's what we're asking for. We're asking for pay equity with all the other career paths open to us, right? It's, it's not, again, yes. we're not being unreasonable. We're just saying, look, with our expertise and our training, there are other options out there that are that are less work, frankly, but are going to compensate better. What we would like to see is equitable pay. Uh, one solution would be to update the fee system so that the fee codes are time modified so that we get paid more if we invest more time in, in our patients, right? So if we spend 45 yeah. minutes with you, it seems reasonable that that might be of more value than a quick five-minute prescription refill. And there's a reminder there to those of us who are lucky enough to have a family physician and go to our family doctor. Not a time to catch up, chit-chat on the needless things, but if all you need is your prescription refilled, get in there, get it, get out so that the person that does need the 45-minute <laughs> appointment can get it. I just like to put that out there. Also, I want to touch on one more thing before I let you go, uh, Dr. Lush, because I know you're very busy. Um, when it comes to when you take time off and you need a locum, if you need somebody to come and fill in for you, isn't it odd I find it extremely odd that the transferable skills from one province to another, never mind all of the unbelievably uh, highly trained immigrants who come here and, and cannot practice because they have to jump through so many hoops, which, by the way, have, have shrunk a little bit with the need. But just having being able to, to go from one jurisdiction to another and, and help, help one another out on the, on the doctor level, 
is is that sort of old school thinking? Is it time for that to 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 go away? Uh, well, I'm certainly locum access is a huge problem, uh, you know, and that's another factor contributing to family physician burnout. We are responsible for our patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. Uh, and, and we are not allowed to take time off or to, to, to go on holidays unless we arrange replacement coverage for our patients. Uh, and that's becoming increasingly harder to access for, again, a number of reasons. There's other more attractive career paths open to the young physicians that typically would be our locum coverage. Uh, other provinces are offering more attractive compensation and working conditions. So, you know, we train up residents in British Columbia and they either go to another province uh, or they go to become hospitalists, and that means our locum pool is shrinking, and so it's getting harder mm-hmm. and harder to find that coverage so that, you know, the family doctors can take time off. Uh, certainly, you know, like a, a nationwide licensing system for locums would, I think, help and that it would give more mobility between provinces, but I think it still yeah. comes down to we're going to have a problem in B.C. until we fix the fundamentally flawed system we have in BC. Uh, You know, locums, uh, even if they're licensed nationally, are not going to want to come and work here if the the compensation is unfair. Right. If it's in an affordability crisis, in a housing shortage. Yeah. That's what we're dealing with. Highest highest cost cost. of living and lowest compensation for our family doctors. So it's a small wonder why we're seeing the crisis. Indeed. Well, hopefully we move the meter just a little bit by having conversations like this, Doctor. Thank you so much for taking some time out for us today. Thank you so much for for shining a light on such an important issue. Have a lovely day.